Asparagus can be planted in a broad climate range. It can remain productive on the same land for 15 years. And it's pretty hardy for new farmers to explore. And this week, we share the ultimate guide to get started. The South African dairy industry has placed immense pressure on milk producers to increase their solids production, specifically butterfat. Mzanzi's farmers are ever looking for ways to maintain liters while increasing butterfat production. This week in our Meadow Feeds segment, Nalita Hildebrand, Ruminant Technical Manager at Meadow Feeds, chats to us about the not-so-simple ABCs of milk fat. In our Agripreneur 101, we meet the co-founder of Indigenous Dread, a cannabis-infused skincare range, Bilkis Syria. She's affectionately known as Sister B. And our book of the week is Traction, Get a Grip on Your Business by Jenna Wickman. And our farmer tip of the week comes from Mbali Nyembe, agricultural advisor and agri-specialist. This is Farmer's Inside Track, supported by Food for Mzansi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey, I'm Zanzi, and welcome to episode 128 of Farmers Inside Track, powered by Meadow Feeds. I'm your host, Dawn Numdu. Now let's get straight into that promise guide to farming with asparagus. Nicole Ludolf chats to Graham Osler, the National Sales and Marketing Director at Denmark Estates. Thank you so much, Dawn. Now, Graham, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? So I fulfill the role of managing the asparagus from production through to sales. So a lot of what I do is sitting down with retailers or exporters and balancing supply and demand and finding prices from a commercial point of view, making sure that the farms are getting a return to make it worthwhile. We can basically put asparagus on the shelf that everyone in the value chain can cover costs and and hopefully try and make a bit of money. Our asparagus business, we are a family business. We started with asparagus farming back in 92 originally with white asparagus and then slowly started converting to green. I think by 97, 98, we had moved fully over to green asparagus. Can you please tell us a bit about asparagus farming? What are the ideal climate conditions? One of the interesting aspects, which a lot of people don't know, is it's a fairly long-term investment. So you actually will plant a root system, which is called a crown into the ground. That crown will be in the ground for approximately 12 to 15 years and you'll harvest a crop every year from that crown what's interesting is you've got to plant the crowns on new virgin soil and not old asparagus soil because it leaves an enzyme in the ground which makes it very difficult for new asparagus to grow on old asparagus lands one of the big expenses with farming asparagus is you've got to continue to look for lands that have never been used for asparagus farming before The ideal climate conditions is a mild summer and a well-drained soil. So mild summer would be a sort of an average high temperature of 28 degrees. And as long as your night temperatures don't drop below 15 degrees, that's sort of the temperature growing space that we do well in the free state, eastern free state. Asparagus is widely grown all over the world with most of the fresh production coming out of Peru and Mexico. China actually grows the most asparagus. But that doesn't always go into fresh production. That goes into value add or being used for other things. Whereas product coming out of Peru and Mexico is effectively fresh asparagus. So basically cut from the farm to be sold on the shelf as fresh asparagus. 
Inputs required for a successful asparagus farm, labor. It's very, very labor intensive. Unfortunately, there's no mechanization involved. You know, all the picking happens by hand and it's quite a tedious operation in that you've got to effectively work ideally six, seven days a week. So you can't leave the asparagus not to be picked. So that's quite difficult. The basics you think aspiring farmers need to know before entering the industry, I think, you know, always start with the market first. Once you've got your market finalized, you can always work back to production. I would think that would be the starting point. What about the asparagus market? Is it difficult for an aspiring farmer to get access? The asparagus market in South Africa is fairly well developed. What we've done over the last 12, 15 years is that we've managed to supply the trade with 12 months of asparagus. So as soon as our season is finished, so our local season in South Africa will run from August through till in about end of March, sometimes mid-April. Thereafter, we import in asparagus for the retailers. So we'll import in asparagus from Peru, Mexico, Thailand. We've imported in from Egypt before. And by being able to put asparagus on shelf for 12 months of the year, the consumer gets accustomed to having it available. And with that, they buy more. And I suppose it's a fairly well-developed market. So when I talk about the retail space, it'll be the modern retail space in terms of your retail outlets, your Woolworths, checkers, pick and pay, spa outlets, and food lovers as well. It's a very small industry in that there are not many commercial farmers left anymore. Back in the 90s, there were probably about 34, 35 farmers in our valley. Currently, there are only two commercial farmers left. I think there are various projects around South Africa where farmers are trying to get back into asparagus farming, but it is a fairly tight circle because you've got to have enough volume in order to supply the market to make the investment worthwhile. But having said that, I'm sure that there are, asparagus is a very popular dish. It's quite a trendy vegetable item. So you shouldn't find it too difficult to find a market for it. I think obviously as a farmer, your biggest risks that are difficult to mitigate are your climate control. So asparagus farming for us is all done out in the open. Nothing's under tunnels. So you're at the mercy of the weather. If it's a wet season, there's not really much you can do about that. Asparagus actually doesn't like too much rain. And if it's a dry season, we obviously do have irrigation and we irrigate and we try and manage it like that. So those are the two biggest challenges. I think obviously labor expenses and just climbing escalation costs make it very difficult to try and manage and obviously pass those back onto the retailer and ultimately the consumer. But it is great. I think once you... If you do have a good year and you can manage your labor efficiently, you know, we have seen some really great rewards by growing the market and being able to sell everything that we harvest. Do you have any tips or pieces of advice for aspiring asparagus farmers? I'd say look at the genetics of the plant material available and look at the international growing scene as well. I'd say, in all honesty, I don't think South Africa has moved forward progressively enough in farming asparagus as what the rest of the world is. A lot of your genetics is coming out of the Netherlands and out of the USA, specifically California. University of California does some good varieties. But I think visiting sites like Peru and Mexico, Spain, the Netherlands, and trying to see what are the new varieties that people are growing, the new planting techniques, I think a lot is changed over the years and keeping abreast of those new genetics 
makes a massive difference in setting up an investment in a farming operation so that your return on investment is is rewarded by making sure that you're abreast of competing with the rest of the suppliers, not only locally, but internationally as well. Thanks, Nicole. And absolutely great having you on Farmers Inside Track. Graham Osler, National Sales and Marketing Director at Denmark State. Now, the South African dairy industry has placed immense pressure on milk producers to increase their solids production, specifically butterfat. Mzanzi's farmers, however, looking for ways to maintain their liters while increasing butterfat production. This week in our Meadow Feed segment, Nalita Hildebrand, Ruminant Technical Manager at Meadow Feeds, chats to us about the not-so-simple ABCs of milk fat. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, how did you start in agriculture and what is your job like? I've uh, been at Meadow Feeds for seven years now. It's been quite a journey and I've grown a lot, I think, and I've learned a lot. Your experience grows exponentially, I think, from year four or five. I work a lot with the dairy farmers in our area and Brazil Natal and do the ruminant formulation and technical advice to them. The only female in the team as well. It's quite a nice team to be part of, though. We've covered quite a bit of ground with your colleagues in terms of how farmers can do better once they know better in terms of nutritional value for their animals. And this week, we're talking about the ABCs of milk fat. Could you maybe give us a breakdown of what this means? I've termed it the not-so-simple ABCs of milk fat because it's quite a challenging thing to get right at all times. So the South African dairy industry, much like the rest of the world, has in recent years begun to place immense pressure on our milk producers to increase their solids production. And this is specifically butterfat. They incentivize or penalize heavily to enforce this pressure. So it can also have a significant impact on the economics of these dairy operations. And like we know, all the livestock industries are under a lot of pressure at the moment to still make profit. The debate remains, however, whether it is lucrative to aim to achieve this, the higher butterfats, while sacrificing litres produced, as litres are probably still the more profitable return. So most farmers are asking from us and looking to maintain their litres while increasing butterfat production. And in pasture-based systems, this remains a challenge because of a variety of factors that I would like to go into more detail into today. Now, what is this that you're referring to, these pasture-based systems? We in KwaZulu-Natal and some of the other areas in South Africa, we are very reliant on pasture as part of the total diet. So dairy cows on pasture visit the milking parlor twice a day, during which time they receive concentrate. Now, this is the portion that we um, as meadow feed supply. This practice is called slug feeding and is not ideal for rumen health because of the starch and sugar levels of this concentrate. So we will discuss rumen pH, which is the big driver for rumen health, in a bit more detail later. When these cows are not in the dairy parlor, they are grazing high-quality pasture, mostly ryegrass and at times cuckoo. And ryegrass is bred for high energy and low fiber, as this is the driver to maximize milk production. Too much fiber will reduce the enter capacity of these cows because of a spatial limit to the rumen. And that's why ryegrass is bred to have lower pastures in recent years. Research has even found that high-quality pastures can have an impact on the pH of the rumen. These pastures are not only high in sugars and low in fiber, they're also high in fats, which will add to the energy. But these fats are also mostly proportioned towards unsaturated fats. And then in winter, when the pasture growth slows down, this causes a dry matter shortage in the total diet, and it will be supplemented with maize silage. Now, maize silage, although it has a higher fiber than ryegrass, and it will add fiber to the diet, it can also be high in starch. 
And this starch, again, will negatively impact the rumen health of the cow. Now, you've spoken quite a bit on rumen health. Now, what is this concept called the black box when it comes to rumen health? What is that all about? I've termed the rumen the black box. The reason for that being that we don't know what's happening in there. We are doing constant research as nutritionists to find out exactly what is happening within the rumen. But in this, what I call a black box, it's where the so-called magic happens. The rumen of the cow is what distinguishes a ruminant to any other species. It's, however, not the black box itself, the rumen itself, that is the amazing part of the machine, I want to call it, but rather the microbes that inhabit this area. Now, these microbes are an integral part of the success of a ruminant. They enable a ruminant to utilize feedstuffs that other livestock species are not able to consume at all. The rumen microbes are able to break down and derive energy from high fibrous feedstuffs. The challenge with this is, however, the fact that the rumen microorganisms require a very specific pH to function optimally. And to be able to fulfill this function, which is the breaking down of the high fibrous feedstuffs. This pH range is 5.8 to 6.2. And when the pH falls below 5.8, this environment becomes unfavorable, the rumen environment becomes unfavorable for the cellulolytic bacteria or fiber digesters. And they are integral to the performance of the animal, the dairy cow. Now, this seems like a very specific time during this production cycle, which needs to be watched very carefully by any farmer. We spoke earlier about these ABCs and A being for acidosis. What does that mean specifically? So I really just tried to break it down into steps or ABCs, things that we can remember and try to have fundamentals that we can change on farm to achieve milk fat. As referred to previously, the desired pH for fiber digesters is 5.8 to 6.2. A drop in pH below 5.8 is termed subacute ruminal acidosis, or SERA, and below 5.2 is acute ruminal acidosis. Lactate-utilizing organisms are also most active within this pH range, which will assist in maintaining pH to a specific level. Now, lactate is one of the strongest or is the strongest volatile fatty acid and has the biggest negative impact on pH. So what happens is during SERA, which is the depression of ruminal pH below 5.8, the population of these crucial organisms will suffer. And when the pH further drops to 5.2 and below, the health of the cow will be dramatically impacted. Or if not treated with urgency, these animals will die. So as you can hear, it's a very fine balance to manage and to get the most out of this black box. It is not also only the drop below a certain pH that will impact the rumen organisms, but also the amount of time spent at these suboptimal pH levels. Now, concentrates that are high in starch and sugars are detrimental to ruminal pH, but the rumen in essence is designed to withstand such a challenge when it has the correct total diet. And this is part of our challenge on pasture-based systems is we cannot consistently deliver the correct total diet and meet the ideal conditions to maintain the pH between the 5.8 and 6.2 range. We're going through the ABCs. What is B? B is for buffering. What is that all about? Buffering is when the change in pH is resisted to maintain pH within the ideal range. So it's like we discussed just earlier, the ideal range we're aiming for is 5.8 to 6.2. Now, it's very relative for me to say that to you and to producers and farmers. At any given point in time, we have no idea what the pH is. 
pH is only recorded in, under research conditions. But we know what to do to try and manage that. So this fantastic black box that I referred to earlier, the rumen, is able to do this on its own, the buffering of the rumen, provided there's enough fiber in the diet. When ruminants chew the cud, they produce sodium bicarbonate in their saliva, which is a natural buffer designed to counteract the pH depressing effect during fermentation. Now, chewing the cud is what ruminants do to break down the fiber into smaller pieces for the microbes to be able to digest that fiber and the feedstuff that they're consuming better. The carbohydrates that we feed are grains or sugars, and they are fed for improved energy and hence milk production. So we cannot have cows just grazing pasture, unfortunately. We have to feed them some concentrates to be able to get the most milk production out of them. There are also nutritional or artificial buffers that can be added to the impala concentrate, but these do not nearly have the efficacy of the natural sodium bicarb that the cow is making when she's ruminating. In fact, research suggests that the natural rumen buffers present in saliva are six times more effective than artificial ones. I call it artificial, but it's not made by the cow itself. And on pasture-based systems, the conditions are somewhat suboptimal for this natural system to be fully functional. So we have fiber in the pasture, but it's just not enough to get them to chew the cud consistently. The one challenge is the fact that our pastures and silages do not have nearly enough fiber to stimulate consistent cut chewing, as I just said. The other challenge is the fact concentrate is fed twice a day. The delivery of buffers at the exact time in this concentrate and to buffer the concentrate that we are feeding is very difficult. And to be able to add buffers that will match the fermentation pattern of the concentrates are exponentially more difficult. Further to that, like I mentioned earlier, pasture on its own can cause SERA, the depression of the ruminal pH. So to have buffers that are available within the system consistently to buffer either the concentrate or the pasture becomes a bit of a challenge. So if we can do that within the cow itself, obviously we're getting a lot more, I want to say, bang for our buck. So that's, in essence, what the B for buffering comes down to. When it comes to C, C for fatty acids, what is that all about? What do farmers and producers need to consider when it comes to that? Right. So it sounds like I really can't spell because C is not for fatty acids, but I'll get to what the C is for. <laughs> so to further exacerbate the issue with ryegrass pasture, it's also very high in fats and especially polyunsaturated fats. And now this is where the C comes in. The C is for the carbon chain that forms the backbone of these fatty acids. These fatty acids will be saturated within the rumen through a process that we call biohydrogenation. This process forms C180. C180 is a fatty acid will be used as an energy source in the small intestine, and it will form part of the fatty acids in milk in the udder. Now, there are two pathways to achieve this biohydrogenation process, one of which has a severe negative impact on milk fat. The biohydrogenation pathway will follow this negative route when the rumen pH is even just slightly depressed. As described before, this is almost impossible to avoid on pasture-based systems. Now, to further make this a challenge for us, cows on pasture will have a high passage rate because of the water content of the pasture. The higher passage rate will cause the rumen digester to leave the rumen before the rumen bacteria has had sufficient time to hydrogenate the unsaturated fatty acids. So now we have a lot of unsaturated fatty acids leaving the rumen going into the small intestine and being used in the udder, and therefore it depresses milk fat. Fiber will help to counteract this phenomenon as it will slow down the rate of passage. It will help slowing down the rate of passage. It will help with chewing the cud, which will produce the buffer. 
So in essence, fiber is one of the key components to be able to fight milk fat depression. Thanks once again for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track. Nalita Hildebrand, Ruminant Technical Manager at Meadow Feeds. We now change gears from dairy farming to cannabis. In our Agri 101, we meet the co-founder of Indigenous Dread, a cannabis-infused skincare range, Bilky Syria. She's affectionately known as Sister B. Now, Sister B, tell us about how Indigenous Dread started. What sparked the idea? I studied aromatherapy with my mom in the early 90s. Met Isaac, who's a Rastaman. We got married, started a family. We started trading on the flea market in Claremont, in between Cavendish and the Link. Hail, sun, wind, harassment from our brothers in blue. We still persevered. At this time, it was very difficult as cannabis was taboo and illegal. We then opened up a store in Mowbray, Indigenous Dread, having to convince people that cannabis is a healer of all nations. Cannabis is also a great alternative to pharmaceuticals. And having to convince people that cannabis is just such a versatile and diverse and beautiful plant. Now, what are some of the challenges you faced? Is it a competitive market? We opened up a store in Mowbray. We're there for many years. We are now in the Deep River area, 200 Main Road, Deep River. We have a consulting service. We also have natural alternatives to pharmaceuticals available. We also try and educate people that have been addicted to pharmaceuticals for many years. The manufacturing process, our products are all natural. All our materials are organic and indigenous. Our products do not contain any animal, alcohol, preservatives, chemicals, parabens. We try and use recycled material for our containers and we try and encourage people to recycle. As a female entrepreneur in the cannabis industry, it's very difficult and challenging, especially in this time with the big corporations taking over this beautiful and humble plant. Too much money and greed. And most importantly, no inclusion of our indigenous people. Now, what keeps you motivated or inspired? I had the privilege of meeting many different souls every day. Healing along the way, sharing knowledge, seeing the transformation, confidence, especially within women, family. I get to spend a lot of time with my family, which is a blessing to me. The strengths and the advice would maybe put almighty first, family. It's important to study and get qualified in your field, especially in this time, lots of healers and people trying to experiment with different types of things and becoming more mindful and aware that there are alternatives. Just be careful, find out if people have actually studied gone through their journey. So get qualified, go and do different courses, get your experience. Don't just Google and research and go on the internet. Those things to sidetrack you, you know, you have to do the work. Now, do you have any advice to other agripreneurs interested in venturing into this field? I strive for balance, try and eat healthy. Discipline is very important, although sometimes not always possible. Don't listen to any negative Self-care is crucial. Sit in your garden, plant more food, listen to the birds, meditate, pray. Anything is possible if you keep the faith and believe in yourself. 
Great having you, Bilkis Sidia, also known as Sister B, the co-founder of Indigenous Dread, a cannabis-infused skincare range. Next up, and before we let you go, our book of the week is Traction, Get a Grip on Your Business by Jenna Wickman. So my life is entrepreneurship. My life is entrepreneurs. I've spent the last three decades of my life obsessing about entrepreneurs, giving them amazing lives, figuring out how to crack that nut and helping them run great businesses. And so for 30 years, I've been doing that. Two years ago, I decided to go to the front end of the entrepreneurial journey and help people who think they might be entrepreneurs that want to take an entrepreneurial leap, that want to start a business, help them do that. The content we're about to talk about is in three parts, confirm, glimpse, path. And confirms mean before we even talk about you starting a business, we got to confirm whether or not you're even an entrepreneur. My discovery, my belief, my learning, and it's now been validated for 30 years, is that a true entrepreneur has six essential traits of a true entrepreneur are visionary, passionate, problem solver, driven, risk taker, and responsible. And so those are the six. I have a very strong belief that you are born with these traits. They cannot be taught. It is nature over nurture. And so that's why I specify confirm so importantly, because you got to confirm that you were born with these. Agriculture is not just about farming. It's about caring. And that's an ideal worth preserving. It's super fresh. It's super soft. And it makes any meal a treat. It's super sure bread and super sure flour. A proud member of the VKB group. From breakfast to lunch and even birthday cakes, Supershow makes the whole family smile. Find Supershow on Facebook or visit vkb.co.za for more info. VKB, for the love of the land. Now, I say this every week, guys. So please come through if you have a book suggestion or perhaps you'd like to review a book. Please email us on info at foodformzanzi.co.za. And before we let you go, our tip of the week comes from Mbali Nyembe, agricultural advisor and agri-specialist. You need to almost know the cycles of when to expect what in the farming industry. So to say fish is now popular because everybody is going in a certain way or eating health-conscious foods. For now, that's where the trend is going and maybe cattle or big livestock is no longer popular. So you need to almost know these trends and understand what could be the possibilities. But also when it comes to climate change as well, we almost know in the agricultural space when to expect heavy rains, La Nina, El Nina vibes. Also be very cognizant to know that you are on top of that. Our farmer tip of the week from Mbali Yemba, agricultural advisor and agri-specialist brings us to the end of another exciting episode. Remember, if you love this podcast, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members, and fellow farmers. From me, Don Numdu, Nicole Ludolf, and our producer, Megan van der Vent, have a great rest of the week. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans, though, right? We're inspiring, and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food Form Zanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.